The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray as we come before God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us, that you haven't left us in the dark to make things up, that you are a real God, a personal God, a powerful God. Lord, and so many of us in this room would testify to how you have visited us, you have changed us, you have transformed us because of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and uh, it's made all the difference. So Lord, we pray that you would do that again this morning. Lord, for everyone who's a Christian here, I pray that this word would uh, encourage us and challenge us, draw us closer to you, help us value you and what we have in you all the more. And for those of us, Lord, who aren't sure about this yet, I pray that you would just show yourself real and beautiful and uh, the meaning, to be the, the meaning of life, which you are. But in any case, Lord, we look to you, not our own strength. We pray for your help, your blessing during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Question for you. Do you think it's ever good, ever a good thing to feel shame? Is it ever good to feel shame? What is shame? Shame is a feeling of guilt or regret or sadness that you have because something you are or have done fails according to your standard. Does that sound about right? Feeling of guilt, regret, or sadness that you have because something you are or something you've done fails according to your standard. But shame really is about value, right? Your standard tells you what's valuable, what's beautiful, and shame is a sense of your feeling on whether or not you have met that standard or you've you've, uh, honored that value. So if you've lived consistently with what you value, you wouldn't be ashamed, right? Um, If you betray or fail in what you value somehow, then that's shame. So is it ever ever good? What do you think? Well, I know sometimes there's bad shame, right? Shame we wouldn't want people to feel. So for instance, imagine a young lady who feels ashamed because she doesn't meet our culture's standard of beauty. She feels ashamed of how she'd look. What, what would we want to say to her? What would you want to say? You'd want to say, no, no, no. You have no shame at all. You are beautiful. You're made in the image of God. And maybe we would want to emphasize, you have the wrong standard. Who says that standard is the real standard? It's not. We're valuing the wrong thing. So that would be a false sense of shame, right? So that would be a sense of shame we don't want her to feel. That's bad shame. In our culture today, it's kind of ironic that we, it's almost like there's no shame sometimes. So we're even losing our ability to have shame. So reality TV shows, what are those even about, right? It's, we're being entertained by people's what? Shame. <laughs> the things where we want to say, this, you shouldn't be happy about this, <laughs> right? You want to say, this shouldn't, you wouldn't want this public, like, Don't you feel any, you might want to say, don't you feel any shame? And yet the things that we used to think should shame us are now the things that make us rich and famous. So we've we've lost an ability to have shame because we've lost any sense of a real standard or what to value. So sometimes there's bad shame. In our case, in this culture, sometimes there's no shame. 
Maybe sometimes there's good shame. Did you ever have your mom say to you, you should be ashamed of yourself? Okay, I think I did. Maybe you hit your sister or you got caught lying or stealing. Or maybe you just gave no effort to your homework. You should be ashamed. Now, was your mom trying to demean you? Or was she actually valuing you in that moment? I think she was valuing you. That's why she said it. She was saying, you're not being who I know you can be. You're not being who I know you are. You haven't valued what we value. This isn't you. This isn't who we are. This isn't what makes us tick. So that was maybe good shame, right? Because you, there is a standard of beauty, of value. And when you don't meet it, if you don't care that you didn't meet it, it shows you don't value what's beautiful. And so maybe there's a good kind of shame that says, gosh, be ashamed for devaluing what's beautiful so that you'll change, you'll repent, you'll, 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 you'll turn it around. So it's not, to, it's not to beat you down, it's actually to lift you up. A good kind of shame that leads to what Christians would call repentance. It would lead to being who we are. I think that's the flavor of this passage. In verse, in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, I write this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. It's not because he hates them or thinks they have no value. It's quite the opposite. It's because he loves them and he thinks they have every value. They're just not valuing what they should be valuing. They're finding shame in all the wrong places and finding pride in all the wrong places. They have the wrong standard. So here's what's happening. There's a lawsuit going on in their church. One Christian is suing another, which reminds me, we always have something to be thankful for, right? To my knowledge, none of you are suing one another. What a great church we have, right? Um, but this event and how the church is handling it is a shameful thing to the apostle because it shows how the church in Corinth valued the wrong things. They had the wrong standard, and they were so far away from being, from living out who they are. So the apostle's goal is to shame them on the way to repentance. He wants them to see, oh man, we've really messed this up. Let's turn to Christ again. Let's get healed again. Let's get fixed again. Shame on the way to repentance. So even though maybe we are in a better place than the Corinthians, and I think we are, praise God, we still have tons to learn from this passage because we see here what should be, what is truly valuable to like the Christian's heart. What should we just love and value? We get to see that here. And then maybe we get to ask the question, okay, is there any place in my life in my heart, in my practice, in what I do, where I should be a little ashamed. In other words, I'm not valuing what is valuable. I'm not living it out. And I should regret that and not to stay down in the, in the mud, but in order to repent, in order to live more fully in who I am in Christ. So I'm going to do four parts this morning. Number one, just help us understand a little more of the situation here in Corinth because their situation 
with this kind of a lawsuit is probably a lot different than what we expect in our culture. Second, I want us to see the value of our destiny. Paul's going to bring that up, the value of our destiny. Third, the value of our community. And fourth, the value of our identity. The value of our destiny, the value of our community, the value of our identity. And the point is that we won't be ashamed. That we'll be who we are. All right? So number one, a little bit of background. So most likely what we have here is two men engaged in a civil lawsuit. They are probably, because they can even do this, they are probably wealthy and influential in their city and wealthy and influential in their church. And so we have fellow number one who defrauded fellow number two somehow. Don't know how, we don't have any details. But this is just, it's funny to think of, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to go to this church? (laughs) There's people defrauding one another. Oh my goodness. Okay? And secondly, fellow number two is taking fellow number one to court. I'm taking you to court over this. Okay? Now here's one thing that's a little bit different for us to understand about a Corinthian lawsuit. Commentators say that lawsuits like this for first century Corinth weren't ultimately about justice or fair play. They were about status, and the process would emphasize the public demeaning and defacing the character of your opponent. So it's like, uh, what's, what, what do they do on celebrity? Um, yeah, so help me, I'm missing the word. No, I'm messing it up. It's where they slam you. They get a celebrity and they all... Roast! Sorry. Can you delete that off the internet part of this sermon? Celebrity roast, okay? Church version. Church version, celebrity roast. Isn't this going to be great? So the whole city will get to see this is how we roll for Jesus, right? One Christian, we're all going to see it, the whole city. One Christian stole somehow from another Christian. Oh. And the other Christian wants revenge. Sweet. And now on a public stage, they're going to rip one another's character for the sake of their own status and money. How's that going to look? How does Jesus look in that picture? It's terrible. And the church is like, yeah, this is normal. So can you see why the apostle is incredulous, disgusted? Do you see why he says you should be ashamed of yourself? Because they are devaluing so many things that that are beautiful They're devaluing, denying who they are. So we're going to see now what they're denying. Paul says they're denying their destiny, their community, and their identity. Verses 1 to 3, their destiny. When one of you has a, look at verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now listen to this. Don't you know that the saints will what? Judge the world? If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? It's easy to forget, isn't it? You may not have even known this. Your destiny as a Christian is surprisingly epic. It's just epic. Sometimes we feel like a nobody, we feel like a loser, one of seven billion You have no idea, right? We have no idea. We forget how 
ridiculously amazing it will be to be Jesus' people when he comes back. In fact, one reason Christianity is so exciting and so difficult, it's, it's the hard part of it, is that we're living for the end of the world. We're living for the end of the world. That's what makes it exciting. This life is not all there is, and that's what makes this life powerful. There's, there's something greater, there's something eternal that when we live here, it makes a difference for that. That's, that's huge. There is, no, there is no normal thing anymore. So Paul will write to, to slaves in the city of Colossae, do everything like you do it for Jesus. So imagine, they're, they're cleaning up after their boss's drunken party, and they have, to, they have to clean up their master's vomit off the tile. How, how meaningful do you feel in that moment? Was that your career goal, you know? You're a slave. You don't have a choice. And yet, Jesus says, if you do that for me, I'll take it like you were doing it for me. Which means that in the end, when you stand before Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the glorious one over everything, Jesus will be like, you cleaned vomit for me. And it will have eternal reward, which is just so empowering. No matter who you are or what you do, if you do it for Jesus, it's eternally amazing. The end of the world will reveal it. So, so we're living for the end of the world. That's also why it makes it hard because living for the end of the world, what do we have to do with the things of this life? Let them go in a way, right? We can't live for now. We can't live for, it's not all about the career now. It's not all about the money now. It's not all about now. It's about then. And so that changes how we do now. And, and doing now like that is sometimes what? Very, it's very difficult. But we're waiting. When Jesus comes back, we're going to get what we want. We're going to see who we are. What's he going to bring when he comes? Justice. No more evil. Beauty. Joy. New earth, new society, the presence of God. That's what we want. And what are you going to see about yourself if you're in Christ? What are you going to see? What does Paul call us here a million times in this letter, every other letter? Saints. You're going to see your saints. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. What are you going to look like when Jesus comes back and we see who you are? You're a saint, holy one, set apart, valuable. Now, we just need to clarify again. What do you think, church? Are we saints, holy, valuable, because intrinsically we're awesome and better than everyone else? Is that how this works? So if somebody's here today and they're not a Christian, do we want them to think, oh, these Christians think they're better than everybody else? No, that's not how it works, right? You'll know about me. I'm not a saint because I intrinsically in myself am more righteous or better than anyone else. I'm not. In myself, I'm a rebel, I'm a sinner, I deserve God's just wrath, in all honesty. But, but what? what? What's the thing that has changed our identity? It wasn't, it wasn't some mountain you climbed or some price you paid. You didn't atone it. You didn't, make, you, you didn't make up for it yourself. Jesus did it all for us, right? He lived a perfect life for us in our place. He died on the cross as a substitute in our place. He rose from the dead. And so how do we get a new identity in him? Some amazing work, deed, heroic act? No? What's the answer? Faith. Trust him. Trust him. So I guess what I'm saying here is, if you're looking at this and you're saying, wow, these Christians say they have this destiny, 
and it's, they're going to judge the world and judge angels, and they're saints, and they're special to God. That's true. We believe all that, but it's not because we earned it. And guess who can have it if they want it? Anybody can have it if they want it. No matter where you're from, what you've done, who you are, your past, no matter anything, if you want an identity in Christ like this, it's yours. Just respond to him in faith. Anybody can have it. Freely offered to anyone. Amazing, isn't it? But this is our destiny. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. Now, if you ask me how this works and what it looks like, I would have to admit, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's not going to be some sort of self-righteous sitting on the bench reviling people. It's going to be representing Jesus somehow with his honor and his authority. Epic, epic. Do you see what your destiny is? Now Paul says to the Corinthians, my goodness, if you are going to judge the world and judge angels, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser, what should you be able to handle? Okay? If you're going to judge the world and judge angels because of your identity in Christ, you should be able to handle the squabble in your community. You should be able to, to figure this out together. Now, when Paul compares the righteous to unrighteous courts, he's not demeaning the value of governmental courts, okay? Romans 13, criminal cases, the government has a job, right? Should we handle every criminal case in-house as the church? No, okay? Oh, government, there's a murder, we're going to try to handle that in-house. No, we're not, okay? God has set up the government for that purpose. That's not what we're doing. Yeah, but, but back into this context, even in the ancient world, Rome did let minority groups handle their own stuff to a point. And so Paul is saying, if this is your identity and you have the wisdom of God and the truth of God in this community, and your final identity is, is representing Christ, then why would you demean that by throwing your trash out on the public stage? They're denying their destiny. How is fellow one denying his destiny? Why did he defraud his friend, his brother in Christ? Is it because he was living for the moment when he would stand before Jesus? No. He was Pepsi, right? What's Pepsi's motto? Live for now. Which is the only reason you would drink a Pepsi. I'm kidding. No judgment. I drink Coke myself. Live for now, though. What a, is, there a, is there a motto that, that fits uh, American culture better than that? Live for now. It's all about now. And so as fellow number one sees what's valuable in life, he wants more stuff somehow. So he's going to take it from his brother in Christ because he's living for now. What's he demeaning? What's he denying? He's denying the value of his destiny. He doesn't need to do this. Look what he has. He has everything in Christ. What about fellow number two? He's, he's lost some money. Some, something, somehow. Is he living for later? Is he living for the return of Christ? Or is he living for now? I got to get my stuff, what's coming to me now, at any cost. He's living for now. YOLO, right? YOLO, that's what the kids are saying. Do you know what YOLO means? It's not the little chocolate thing with caramel in it, that's Rolo, okay, YOLO, do you know what the kids are saying, you only live once, it's everywhere, you only live once, 
for Christians, you're denying something that's core to who you are. We live twice. We live twice. We live here and we live there. And the, the extent to which we value what it means to live there is going to change quite a bit how we live here. Right? Do you value your destiny in Christ? And the question for you here is, how will you have wanted to live when you stand before Jesus? And does that sense, that desire, define and determine how you're living now? And it changes everything, doesn't it? If you're living for now, will you be more or less generous? Living for now, this life, less generous. I got to keep it because now is all that counts. If you're living for later, more or less generous? More. Jesus says, eh, don't, don't, don't put your treasure here where it rots. Put your treasure there. I'll reward you and it will never fade away. If you live for now, you're, you're a bad investor. It's a bad stock. Everything here tanks. Everything there lasts forever. You'd be more generous. What about missional? Caring for other people. If you live for now, it's, it, living for now makes it more selfish. Living for then makes it more other-centered. If you have a view on eternity, it's going to change how you view your relationships with other people. We want to live for then. So we see what Paul's saying is, you're demeaning the value of your destiny, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Because look at what it's doing in your life. And so his goal for them is to, is to then what? Repent. See it again. See who you are. See what's coming. And live accordingly. So, Christians, let's value our destiny in Christ. Let's live for then. That will change how we live now. The second thing we should value is our community in Christ. Look at verse 4. Paul says in your ESV translation, If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, in verse 5. Okay, so I'm going to do what I often don't do because I'm not smart enough or scholarly enough, but I think there's a better translation in verse 4. A lot of commentators and scholars kind of wrestle over verse 4. And there's a different angle, probably. It won't change the general meaning of the text. But let me give you what I think it should be. And this is from commentator David Garland. Verse 4. Let's try it like this. If you have ordinary cases, those who are disdained in the church, set them on the bench. And Garland thinks, as Paul has been doing the last two chapters, Paul is being sarcastic. Those who are disdained in the church. If you've been following the thought process of 1 Corinthians, the city of Corinth values pride, status, wealth, rhetoric, coolness, and demeans, disdains the humble, disdains especially the message of the cross. The world, the city, disdains the humble. And this, this leads us to some more information on what these lawsuits in Corinth would have been like. Listen to this quote. This is, what, this is what a lawsuit like this in Corinth would have been like. Persons of high status were prone to settle disputes through lit litigation. 
because they had the upper hand in the courts because they could capitalize on their influence and wealth and could enhance their own reputation by injuring their opponents or increase their wealth with legal conquests. But the lower classes were restricted from doing so since they were unlikely to win against stacked odds. The law, for example, favored creditors over debtors and landlords over tenants. Such a suit against someone of higher rank would also show an unwelcome lack of respect for one's betters. See, do you hear what the commentator is saying? In the city of Corinth, it's all the, the, the deck is stacked for the rich, for the powerful, for the influential. And you don't have any hope as someone who's poor. Now, what is the gospel, the message of the cross, to that view of the world? Does God give a rip whether or not you're rich when it comes to you being right with him? Does he care? God, can I come into your kingdom and be your child? What's your uh, 401k look like? Because I'm poor? What? Does, uh, God doesn't care. As in, in fact, the things we take pride in, God laughs at mockingly. Oh, really? What a joke. Or does God care how beautiful you are or how well-spoken you are when it comes to being his child? He doesn't care. Does God care how religious you are when it comes to being his child? He doesn't care. Any human distinction that we take pride in, oh, we make it. I, I'm in the upper class. I'm in the upper rank. I'm in this race, this ethnicity. I have this much money. I'm from this generation. God doesn't care. The one thing that matters is, how do you respond to the cross of his son? The cross of the Lord Jesus is what makes you right with God. If you look at that cross and say, Jesus, I need you, who you are and what you've done for me, I trust you, then no matter all those other human distinctions, you are adopted as a child of God. The cross is the only difference maker. And so Paul said in chapter 1, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. He said this to the church in Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's a backhanded compliment, right? Worldly speaking, you guys are kind of losers. But then in verse 27 of chapter 1, But God chose you to shame the wisdom of the world, to show he doesn't care, that the only thing that matters is the cross of Christ. So apply this to this lawsuit idea. Fellow number one is probably rich and influential. So is fellow number two. And so they go into this system that has stacked the deck for the rich to win and look good. And they're demeaning, forgetting the identity of the who in their church. There's poor Christians in the church. And yet who has more value, who has more wisdom in the sight of God? The rich pontificators in the culture who value human pride, or the poor Christian who has the Holy Spirit and the mind of Christ according to the Word of God. And so this verse, Paul is saying, if you have ordinary cases, those who are disdained in the church, put them on the bench. Paul is saying, you will get better justice from those whom the world disdains in your church than you will from the world. What are the Corinthians doing? They're demeaning their community. They're demeaning the 
the true value of the people of God bought by the cross. They're falling in love with the things of the world. And Paul says, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're devaluing God's people based on human distinction. Do you see what he's saying? How do we do that? What makes somebody like you? You never learn this lesson better than in a, a small church. We could all go, I don't mean to demean any other church, but you could go to a church for certain reasons, right? Each one of us likes different things, more or less. I like loud rock and roll. It's not a big deal. But what if, what if that was the thing? The thing. Or you might say, I want to be with people who dress like me, who look like me, generally my age, my style. It's, it's fine. We're, we're, all com- we're all comfortable, more comfortable with people who are like us and share common interests. That's okay. That's normal. But is that the thing? Is that the thing? Or I don't want to be with people too, old, too much older than me or too much younger than me. Or with just a different nationality or a different culture. I get it. It's normal. But are those things the thing? What is the thing? In Christ is the thing. So if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we have infinitely more in common than I do with anyone who's not in Christ who may be just like me in every other way. If we're in Christ, we will be together forever. We are God's people. We are the Father's children. Christ is all to us. And in Corinth, they are devaluing that. They're valuing the the oomph, the rhetoric of the culture over the people of God. And Paul says, you should be ashamed. They're they're devaluing the community. There's another way they're devaluing their community. We see it in verses 6 to 8. Brother goes to, goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You can see Paul just going. If he was texting, it'd be SMH. You know what that means, right? Shaking my head. I'm trying to be relevant, appealed, okay? Shaking my, he's shaking his head. Oh my gosh. You go to law, brother against brother, before unbelievers. Look at verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a what? A defeat. You may win your case, but you lost. We all lost. What does the gospel teach us? Jesus teaches us to value self-sacrificial love, right? Didn't he give of his life for us? Self-sacrificial love. Jesus teaches us forgiveness. Don't you have a debt against him that you owe? A debt against God from your sin? And didn't, didn't the Father just wipe that clean based completely on what Jesus did for you? Didn't he forgive it all? And how comfortable was that experience for Jesus? Just, you know, brush it. No big deal. No. It was a cross that did that. So we value self-sacrifice, love, forgiveness. 
And now in Corinth, they have this public spectacle that denies everything about Jesus' people and the cross. So what do these two guys love? What are we seeing that they love? They love money and status. And what do they not love, obviously, on stage for all to see? They don't love one another. (laughs) Jesus said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples if you love one another. And now those who are saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I'm a Christian too, and I hate him. He's a jerk. Yep, he's a jerk too. I hate him. I want his money. All on stage for the world to see. If the world doesn't see the gospel in the church, where are they going to see it? Where are they going to see it? There's no other place. Timothy says, the, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. My job and your job as our community together is to hold up the gospel in such a way to where we emphasize it and people go, oh, that's what it looks like to love, to forgive, to be unified. That's how you do it. That's our job is to uphold the gospel. And so Paul is just, oh my gosh, you're doing the opposite in public for the whole city to see. They're demeaning everything about who they are in this. We don't love repentance, we love fighting. We don't love forgiveness, we love revenge. This is not quite the evangelism we're looking for. So he says to the one suing the other, you might win your case, but you lost. We all lost, you should be ashamed because you just denied publicly everything we say we believe in. That's what the world's going to see. And so Paul says, it would be better for you, look look what he says in verse 7, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So the guy who got defrauded and taking his brother to court, he had a choice. The glory of God in the church, I could preserve it in a way if I forgive, or I can demean it and deny it in public if I go to law. I think I'll go to law. And Paul says, you, you lost, even if you win, you lost. The win would have been forgiveness. That's what Jesus did for you. But you'd have to live, you'd have to live for the end to be able to do that. Can't do that if you're living for now. Then Paul also says to the one being sued, verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your brothers. You see what he's saying? This is amazing. Everybody's going to see you defrauded your brother in Christ. You denied the family of God purchased by the blood of Jesus. Jesus gave everything for you and you're taking from your brother. You should be ashamed of yourself. Don't you all agree? They should be ashamed. Why? They're not valuing the community bought by Jesus Christ. They're not valuing what it means to be in the family of God. They're not valuing the gospel. And not only is it happening in their own relationships, it's happening on stage. Because see, as the church, part of our job, like we said, is a public witness to Jesus. We've got to value God's glory in the church. And what does that mean for you for me, there's probably a lot of ways you could apply it. First, just asking your heart, do you value God's people like God does? Or do you have too many kind of worldly human distinctions in your mind about what's important? Is Christ enough? Secondly, maybe it's worth asking, how do you talk about people in your church? How do you talk about church to the world? Isn't there something to protecting reputations? 
Does everybody need to, to know everything all the time? I don't think so. We need to protect one another's reputations. As a church, we should confess our sin, right? And I mean that universally and on the small picture as well. When a church leader publicly sins, we should call it what it is. It's sin. We should repent, right? Problems in our own lives, our own church, when it's there, when it's in public, we should repent. That's, that's part of our witness too. We should repent. So, so we should be honest. It's, it's not being fake. But can't we protect one another? You know, I've been a pastor for over 10 years, and sometimes people will tell me stories about other pastors, which in some cases is fine and totally appropriate. It's totally appropriate sometimes. It really is. But after 10 years, you hear sometimes what other people told other people about you, and you're like, I don't remember it that way. (laughs) It just gave me more compassion for the pastors I'm hearing about. (laughs) All I'm saying is, and it's not just about pastors, it's about anybody. There's always two sides to every story, more like seven sides, right? And the eighth is God. He alone knows the real truth. Do we, what do we want the world to see about believers? Are we highlighting the real thing about the gospel, about the love that is shown? I heard an interview the other day where it's, the guy is just creaming the church. He said, it's been a bad 300 years for the church. And that's all there is to it. End of story. Well, has the institution of the church done some bad things in the last 300 years? Yeah, really bad. Did anything good happen? Are you kidding me? It's the good stuff that, doesn't, that never makes the newspapers. The way you all serve and love and forgive one another on a daily basis. Nobody's putting that on the cover of a magazine. But it's real. It's there. Did the church love, serve, forgive, lead people to Christ? Oh, gosh, yes. You know, it's kind of like... You go out to coffee with somebody and they spend the whole time dissing their wife. Or maybe it's like if you went out to coffee with somebody and they spent the whole time dissing somebody else's wife. I imagine, how would I feel if I was in a conversation and somebody was dissing my wife? That would be a trigger mechanism for me to want to be violent and angry. I only raise that so we'll remember, who's Jesus' wife? It's the church. And he loves us. Let's value us like he does. So we should be ashamed we don't value our destiny. We should be ashamed we don't value church community because those are truly valuable and we want to live consistently in that last one. We shame ourselves when we question our identity by our behavior. Or we should be ashamed when we don't live out who we are. Or what we're saying is we should value our identity. Look at verse 9. Paul's still really upset with the Corinthians for this public demeaning of the gospel. 
And in verse 9 he says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. There it is. So what's unrighteousness? Well, it's the opposite of righteousness. What's righteousness? Righteousness is God's character revealed by his commands. So it's what he loves. And how do we know what that is? He tells us. Okay? So we know God's, part of God's righteousness is his faithfulness. Because his commands say, don't lie. Always tell the truth. Because he does. The unrighteous are those who dislike, disobey, disbelieve God. And live that out. They love what he hates. They hate what he loves. And they won't get the kingdom. They will get his wrath, right? Not the kingdom, his just wrath. And by the way, how many of you were in this category before Christ? I was, okay? All of us were. So we're not, we're not judging out of our own self-righteousness. But here's the reality. God is holy. And those who practice and love unrighteousness won't inherit the kingdom. That's what he's saying, right? Then he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Okay, so if he's saying don't be deceived, that means they're tempted to believe a lie. So what's the lie they're tempted to believe? Don't you know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? What's the lie we're tempted to believe? Oh, sure, the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Sure, I can practice unrighteousness and still think I'm great as a Christian. And Paul says, that's a lie. Don't be deceived. Don't think you can just love what the world loves, that system against God, and think God's cool with that. Why is he saying this? He's about to give us a list (laughs) that helps us see Righteousness versus unrighteousness. But before we get there, I want to make a few things clear. Number one, informal poll. Do you become a Christian by doing the right things? This is on my, I want you, I want you well versed in this question. All the polls say, people think Christianity is doing good stuff. That's what the world thinks. God help us. That is not Christianity. If you're thinking, I can't be a Christian, I've done too many wrong things. Oh, I have good news for you. What you've done is nearly irrelevant. So how we live is not what makes us right with God. Can I get a resounding amen from you Protestant people? Okay. It's not what makes us right with God. It's faith in Christ that makes us right with God, right? It's trusting in him. And there's another caveat that needs to be made. We all start in different places. So you could have one guy born into the nicest, coolest, politest, gentlest family, and he looks so good already, and he comes to Christ, and ten minutes after he comes to Christ, he looks like a Christian who's been a Christian for 40 years. Look where he started. Then you can have somebody else who starts in generations of dysfunction. And maybe they had a life of addiction. And who knows what happened to them. 
and they become a Christian. And ten minutes after they become a Christian, they look terrible. But God sees where you start. And so the smallest thing like, I'm going to drink less today for Jesus. That's evidence that they're Christians, right? Whereas dude over here is like, I always live in moderation, okay? Great. The olives, do you see the point? We start in different places, so we have to be really careful in judging this. Really careful, really humble. Because behavior is evidence of faith. But we don't always see the evidence clearly. Okay? We don't always see the evidence clearly. If somebody who never met me saw one five-minute episode of my life right now, they might be like, not a Christian. Hopefully that's not all the evidence. Right? So we need to be humble when we think about this. Behavior is evidence of who you are, but we don't always see the evidence clearly. Who does? God sees the evidence. But when Paul is looking at the Corinthians, he thinks, some of these people think it's just fine to live like hell and think they're right with Jesus. For instance, all this list of stuff we're seeing them doing with, with, no, with no hesitation. And so he needs to remind them, warn them, wake them up. Look, you, trusting Jesus is not just like a get-out-of-hell-free card. And now you can live however you want and just play the card at the end. It's a new identity. It's a new life. It's a new you. It's new desires. And so, the key word for me here is practicing unrighteousness questions your identity. So we're going to look at this list. As we get to this list, we're seeing just a, this is not the main thing in this chapter for Paul, right? It's an illustration. The main thing is, hey, you're not valuing your destiny. You're not valuing your community. And this last one, you're not valuing your identity. But he's going to give this list that shows some pictures of righteousness versus unrighteousness. A couple of things to see already is every one of us struggles with something in this list in some way. Something on this list would outrage every culture in the world. I don't have time to unpack everything in this list, in this message. But they were all popular in Corinthian culture. And Paul's saying, hey, Christians, you're different now. You're different And this list will fall on you with the weight you put on the value of who you are in Christ. And so we're seeing, don't be deceived. You can't practice unrighteousness and have assurance about your salvation. It questions your identity. We all struggle, but you can't practice. What's the difference between struggle and practice? Practice is, oh, heck yeah, I'm going to do it. Struggle is, I still fall into it, but I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it for Jesus' sake. Okay? So careful. We have to be so careful. Are we saying Christians never, ever struggle with any of the things in this list? Not saying that. Don't believe it. Christians struggle with everything on this list. The key word is they struggle. They're resisting it. They're fighting it. They're moving towards Christ in it. Where, and the thing that Paul is against is 
practicing. Oh, yeah, I do it, and I'm a Christian. Paul says, no. Do you see the difference? Not of the list, and I can't give it the time it deserves. Number one, Paul says, sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality denies the Christian identity. I always feel like a Southern Baptist preacher from Mississippi when I say immorality. Because I feel like nobody knows what that means. And it's just one of the catchwords. Immoralities and transgressions. Iniquities. Right? Immorality is to take something good and to twist it. To break it. To dirty it. To muddy it. Not use it what it's for. So... And this is, you, you see where we struggle here with this message. The purpose of sexuality. It's all about purpose. Pur- what's it for? And sexuality is meant to glorify God's faithful covenant with his people. It happens in two basic ways. It happens in abstinence for singles. We're showing that we won't just give our covenant love anywhere. We're waiting. An abstinence single life shows the Christian church waiting for the coming of Jesus. We're not content with anything here. We're waiting faithfully for him. It happens in singleness. It also happens in marriage between a husband and a wife. They're a picture of Christ in the church. And so sexuality and marriage glorifies the reality that when we're with Jesus, we will enjoy that union that will be full of intimacy and bliss and unity forever. So there's two pictures we have of glorifying God's covenant with us in sexuality. And so, sexual immorality, adultery, and the practice of homosexuality, Paul says, that is unrighteous because it's demeaning the purposes which God made for sexuality. So we all struggle with some of these things, maybe all of them, in some way. Let's repent and turn to Christ and know we're forgiven. But we can't practice it. Secondly, idolatry. We can't practice idolatry. Now, for Corinthians, idolatry was just on the billboards. You went to the store and this cow was killed for that idol. Or there would be some business party and part of the business party was some sort of idol worship. But you can feel the struggle for them because how many of you want to lose your job? And what if to keep your job... You had to participate in an idol feast. What do you do? If you're married, would you pretend you were married to someone else in order to keep your job? Where's the line for you? At what point would you say, I got to lose my job? Paul says, no idolatry. Why? Jesus gave his all for us. I belong to him. I'll go down for that. Will you go down for that? Would you go down for Jesus? Everything for him, if you had to? No idolatry. We've been bought by the blood of Christ. We belong to him. You could probably plug in, Paul says, no drunkards. These were all things that were huge in Corinth. No drunkards will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, these are not people who are struggling or fighting with an addiction. You're forgiven and you're loved. Keep struggling, keep fighting. We want to stand with you. It's the practice. Oh yeah, this is great. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it all the time. How does drunkenness deny your identity? Well, it comes out of an idolatry of its own, doesn't it? You need something other than Jesus to be happy. 
Does it glorify God when you're drunk? You ever had somebody come up to you and be like, I saw how you were drunk at the party the other night. Will you tell me about the Savior who's changed your life? I've never heard that one. Can't practice that. How about reviling? Did you have any idea that this would be on this list? We're used to the big sins and then reviling. Do you know what reviling is? Abusive criticism in an angry and insulting matter. This will preach. How many have certain people in your life where you revile them constantly? Abusive criticism. It totally denies identity in Christ. Does Jesus treat you that way? Can't be, you can't practice reviling. Or greed. The greedy. Selfish, stealing, thieves. The greedy won't inherit the kingdom. How does that deny who we are? Is God greedy? Or is he just ridiculously generous with the totally undeserving? Does he share? Uh, Christianity 101 for how we treat others, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Can't be greedy and to practice it, to practice greed. It won't inherit the kingdom. We all feel greedy sometimes. We all feel covetous sometimes. So we have to struggle with it. We have to bring it to Christ. To practice this, oh, we should be ashamed. It denies our identity. So what do we do? What do we do in the midst of this struggle? And here come some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Look at verse 11. Just like a mom saying to her kid, this is not who you are. Look what Paul is saying to us. us. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Those things used to define you and who you are. They used to be the way you saw your identity. But, not anymore. But, what happened to us? Simply through faith in Christ. Do you see it? Verse 11. But you were what? You were washed. You were washed. You've been cleansed from all of this. You were sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been made pure through Jesus and what he's done for you. You were justified. You remember what justified means? It means God gives you the standing. Perfect. He looks at your life, right? The book of your life was opened before a holy God and he read it according to his standard. He'd be like, guilty, right? But Jesus, if you just trust in him, if you trust in Jesus, Jesus moves your book out of the way and puts his book down and you open that and the Father says, perfect. And Jesus says, this person's mine. My death was for them. My life was for them. The Father says, yes, I've unified this person to Christ. And so Jesus' book, his perfection is now yours. And so through faith in Christ, you're justified. Isn't that awesome? Can you, can you think of that for a moment? That God, when he looks at you right now, does not see, does not take into account your sin. It's perfect. Perfect. But look what I did yesterday. I know. Do you trust in Christ? It's enough. Perfect. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you see the work of the Trinity here? 
The Father has justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus. You bear his name, and by the Spirit, Jesus accomplished your salvation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his reign, and the Holy Spirit is applying it in you. When you believe the gospel, when you want to follow Christ, that's the Spirit of God working in you. The Father is just doing this cosmic hug to his people through Christ by the Spirit. He's bringing you in, washing you, sanctifying you, justifying you, which means... Who you are is not how you feel. Who you are is not what you've done. Who you are is not what you struggle with. Who you are is who God has made you in Christ, by grace through faith. You are a child of God, loved, adopted, welcomed. And so the Christian life, the Christian ethic is not, oh, if I would do this, I could become something, but I can't. It's, I already am this. I already am. So let's be who we are. Be who you are. That gives you power to change. I don't know of any other power to change than that. You are someone new by grace, undeserved love. You are this. You can be who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit, which means you can fight, you can struggle. Because you're loved. So, to sum it up, what do we value? Can we value our destiny and live for then so that we can live radically, powerfully for now because we know what's coming? It's a shame when we only live for now. We look like we're not Christians. Value our destiny. Second, value the community, the Christian community, the Jesus blood-bought community, value brothers and sisters in Christ and value how the way our community working together brings glory to God. We are the picture of the gospel for the world. Third, value your identity, your desires, your struggles. Don't define you. Jesus does. Let's have our value for him be evident in how we live. We pray with me? Father, by the power of your spirit, we pray you'd help us to see what we have here in Christ. Help us to value what you've shown us to value and let that change how we live. And God, let if anyone in here is deeply struggling with these things, let them see your grace and your mercy that you forgive all those who come to you in faith and that you have compassion and love and power for them. And Lord, as we just sit in your presence, let's help us to remember your mercy, the inheritance you're giving us, and put our stock in the good things you've given about what's coming for us and about what's who we are so that we can live in a way that brings you glory and the world says they're different. We pray this for your glory, for our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.